It was Messi versus Mbappe. With all apologies to all of you who are Ronaldo fans, it was the best of one generation against the best of the new generation. And clearly Messi proved to be the GOAT. Argentina and France seemed to take even this country by storm. It seemed to come to a standstill. The game was obviously historic, even if you don't like football. Messi and Mbappe took over. They performed at a uniquely high level. That's why they are superstars, isn't it? They did what superstars alone do. If you knew nothing about Messi or Mbappe, and I know some of you don't have a clue who I'm talking about, it wouldn't do you good if I asked you, who are Messi and Mbappe? It would be much better if I said to you, I'm going to tell you about two superstars. I'm going to tell you about all their accomplishments, even in the last World Cup. And I'm going to prove to you that's exactly what they are. And this morning, we are going back to John's Gospel. Back because we were in John's Gospel two years ago, January 2020. If you look on our website, our last sermon in John's Gospel was March 13, 2020. The next week, the world shut down. Now, since then, we've done a number of things. We've done other books. We've done other topics. But today, we're going to dive back in to this glorious Gospel. And we're going to do so where we left off, in John 6. John 6. If you're not familiar with the Bible, John is in the New Testament. That would be bit more than halfway through the Bible. He is the fourth gospel writer. A gospel is a story. It's the biography of Jesus. They're true stories of Jesus' life. Now, we know why this writer, John, wrote the gospel that he wrote. He tells us in John 20, verse 31. He wrote that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wants you to believe in Jesus. I want you to believe in Jesus. And if you do believe, I want your faith strengthened. But just as it wouldn't help you if you had no idea who Messi or Mbappe are, if you knew nothing about them, John's gospel is not so much interested in answering the question, who is Jesus, it's more answering the question, who is the Christ, the Son of God? And in this gospel, if you read it, he's proving to you it's Jesus. And so in today's passage, I want you to see very clearly this. Jesus is the Christ because Jesus does what God alone can do. Jesus is the Christ because Jesus does what God alone can do. So turn to John 6. The big number, 6 is the chapter number. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're going to be working through verses 1 through 21, and we're going to see this in two different scenes, like in a play, two different scenes. First, We'll see Jesus feeds where there is little food. 
Jesus feeds when there's little food. And second, Jesus walks where no one can walk. Jesus walks where there's nowhere to walk. Let's begin in verses 1 through 15, seeing Jesus feeds when there's little food. I'm going to read these first 15 verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when we come to this passage in this book, you should know that Jesus has already performed a a number of signs to prove who he is. He's already changed water into wine at a, a wedding, and he saved the best wine for last. He's had an all-night conversation with a religious leader who was confused when Jesus told him that to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And so that man left that night out into the darkness. Jesus has already forgiven an adulterous Samaritan woman. He declared to her he's the long-awaited Messiah. He's healed a blind, lame man on the Sabbath of all days. And when he was confronted by it, about it by the angry religious leaders, he said, God is his father. And so he was making himself equal with God. And now we come to a passage that for a number of you, you're you're very familiar. It's included in all four of the Gospels. It begins after this, referring back to chapter 5, which I would encourage you to go back and read. And after this, doing this, signifying who he is, he he now has gone away. He's gone over 21 kilometers to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But that didn't prevent, verse 2, this large crowd from following Jesus. Why did they follow Jesus? They saw the signs he was doing on the sick. It would be wrong to assume they followed him 
because they believed in him. Already in this gospel, back in John 2, John reports that about Jesus that many believed in his name because they saw the signs, but Jesus did not entrust himself to, the, to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. So Jesus never mistook fascination with belief. Have you? In this new year, some of you should investigate the claims of Jesus. Maybe others of you should examine why it is you say you follow him. Your disappointment with Jesus might be just because you expect from Jesus what he never meant for you to expect. We see in this gospel that a disciple follows Jesus not for what we might get from Jesus, but for who Jesus is, no matter what we get. These crowds, at this point at least, are just that. They're crowds. They're not disciples. It's the disciples that Jesus sits down with there on the mountain in verse 3. This is the area today known as the, the Golan Heights. He has gone there to be alone with his disciples. John tells us the Passover was at hand. Uh, the Passover was a time of national zeal, patriotism for Jewish people. It's, it's like National Day that we just celebrated here. It's the second time in this gospel John has mentioned this day, Passover. And in both instances, Jesus has done something significant. Now notice here... He's sitting with his disciples. In verse 5, he sees the crowd. Now, because this account is in Mark's gospel, we know that Jesus' interest in feeding them comes from the fact that he had compassion. And in his compassion, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them. So Jesus' compassion for people is first demonstrated by teaching. And while his disciples may have wanted to send the crowd away when it came time to eat, Jesus did not. What's his question in verse 5? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? That is such an interesting question. Jesus is putting the responsibility for this crowd's eating on himself and his disciples. And he specifically here asked Philip. We've already met Philip in this gospel. Like Andrew and Peter, Philip was from Bethsaida. This was the town right beside where Jesus was. And so it was natural that in light of this crowd, Jesus would ask the guy from the town right beside where they all are. Now, this is just an aside, but it's details like this that, for me, give me confidence in the Gospels. If you made this up, or as some allege, John doesn't even know much about this region, look at this detail he included. The most logical explanation for the fact that John includes that Jesus asked Philip is that Jesus asked Philip, because it really happened, just as John reports. It's from an eyewitness. And this small detail 
gives us confidence in this account and in the whole gospel. John's first readers, when they would have read this account, they would have thought back to Numbers 11. That's what Jesse read to us earlier. That's where God's people were many in number. They were complaining. And there in Numbers eleven thirteen, which we heard, Moses is exasperated by this crowd. Exasperated by their complaining. He wants to be done with them. And he cries out to God in anger. Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? Jesus is not exasperated. Jesus is filled with compassion. And unlike Moses, who genuinely did not know where he would get meat, that would meet the complaints of God's hard-hearted people who wanted something other than manna, Jesus didn't really ask Philip because he was curious about where to get bread. John tells us why he asked Philip. Verse 6, to test him. Because he knew what he would do. So here's Moses, helpless before a great crowd. Jesus in complete control. Jesus is very deliberately, methodically revealing his identity. Even in asking questions, he's leading. Leading his disciples to where he wants them to go. Philip Where are we to buy bread so that they may eat? Philip fails his test. Notice he doesn't even answer Jesus' question. Instead of telling Jesus where he could actually find bread, which he would have known, he takes it on himself to teach Jesus a thing or two about money. 200 denarii, about eight months' wages, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So where does Philip go wrong? He's thinking materially when Jesus means for him to think and to see spiritually. Jesus, we have very little money. And if we had eight months worth of money, it would provide a crowd this size very little. Friends, if you would see Jesus rightly, if you would understand who he is, you must discern spiritual reality. It's what Nicodemus, the religious leader, failed to do. Jesus means for Philip, he means for you, he means for me to see him. For who he really is. It's easy to think that what is material is more real than what is spiritual. Jesus is working to open blind eyes so that people who are blind might see the world and Jesus as it is. Thankfully, Philip was offered a lifeline. Andrew. Simon Peter's brother, verse 8, he chimes in and he says, there's a boy, he's got five loaves, barley loaves, two fish, what are they (laughs) for so many? Little money, little boy, little food, so many people. There is a complete scarcity of resources. There is a great abundance of need. 
What they have is inadequate. Now, you should know that in the scriptures, this is not the first time that God has brought his people to this very spot. I want you to turn back to Numbers 11. If you've got the, a, script, you're a, a copy of the scriptures or an iPhone, turn to Numbers 11. And I want you to look at verse 21. Numbers 11, verse 21. think you're there. But Moses said, the number among whom I am numbers 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Notice way back centuries ago, God's servant saw the crowd. He could not see the provision. Why does the Lord bring his people to these places? That his people might see that the Lord provides when there's no human way possible. That his people might understand our total dependence upon the Lord. Jesus, in this text, knows who he is. His disciples do not understand yet. And so he wants them, he wants you to make sense of him by demonstrating he does what God alone can do. He provides where there's no human way possible to provide. So the lie of sin is that you are independent. Ultimately, the lie is that you can accomplish salvation on your own. And yet, fundamentally, to be a human being is to be created. And therefore, no matter how rich you are, or poor, or powerful, or powerless, it is to be dependent. Fundamentally dependent upon the Lord and no one else. So if we're dependent as physical beings, how much more as spiritual beings... Do you believe you, you, can do enough to earn your way to God? If you're a Christian, are you trying to move forward in the Christian life by your own strength? When you began by grace, have you lost your astonishment in what God does in providing in your sinful heart what was otherwise not possible. The disciples had so little, and yet they didn't know it so much. Verse 10, Jesus tells the disciples to have the crowd sit down in the grassy area. And John tells us there was 5,000 men. Now, this story is often called the feeding of the 5,000, but notice that's just the men. Most estimates are that that it was upwards of 20,000 people there that day. So picture this massive crowd. They're sitting there, and they're expecting something from Jesus. And Jesus gives audible, public, visible thanks to God, and he distributes the loaves and the fish. Jesus performed a miracle. It's not explicable by natural laws. 
He didn't just provide for their need, did he? Notice the end of verse 11. As much as they wanted, there were leftovers. He told his disciples to gather them in in verse 12 so that nothing would be lost. What's amazing here is there's abundance. You know what else is amazing? There's no waste. This is an agrarian society. People would have lived day to day. And Jesus wasted nothing in that feeding. The leftovers were 12 baskets full. I wonder if this was a clue. A clue to his own people who had come from 12 tribes. There's enough bread here for all of you. Every one of you. This was clearly a sign. And when they saw it, notice what they concluded. That Jesus is the prophet to come into the world. Now they weren't wrong to think this. They knew their their scriptures. They knew Deuteronomy 18. When Moses declared, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So notice, here's God's people. They had these expectations based on what God's word had said. And he would be like Moses. He would come from their brothers. He would be a Jew. And he would have authority. And here's this Jewish crowd who's just seen and experienced this miracle from this leader who has taught them all day. And this would have taken their minds back to Moses' day when God miraculously fed his people manna in the wilderness. And so they rightly believed with their very eyes they were seeing the one whom Moses predicted. What did Moses do for his people? He led them out from under the world's superpower, and he led them into the promised land. If Jesus is the one to whom Moses was pointing, their expectations were heightened. What did they want to do in verse 15? Make him their king. It's Passover. Nationalistic fervor is sweeping this crowd. They are discerning. He is the long-awaited prophet. But they're wrongly discerning what it all meant. Now, I want you to think about 5,000 men. They had the the strength to sweep Jesus up. They they could have band together. They could have done some real damage. What was the sign? Jesus does what God alone can do. He miraculously provides food for his people in the midst of their need when they have no resources to do so on their own, no power to provide for themselves. If that's true for bread, surely it's true for salvation. When you read the scriptures, signs are never there for no reason. When signs are done, they authenticate the message or the messenger. They're never done to entertain. They're never done to draw a crowd. A crowd. I mean, notice this. When Jesus perceived they wanted him to be their king, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. So they, they see the sign, but they don't understand what it signifies. Now, some of you here are, are coming from backgrounds 
where someone has claimed authority to perform signs. I want you to see Jesus doesn't use signs to draw a crowd. You should be asking about teachers who claim to do signs and wonders. Are they making much of themselves or Jesus? Are they using whatever it is they're doing to to build a crowd for themselves, or are they wanting to point the crowd to Jesus? You know, the apostles in the New Testament understood well the use of signs. Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, he was preaching there to that crowd, and he declared, men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and signs that God did through him in your midst. So God attested to who Jesus is by signs not to fascinate crowds, but to signify to the world who he is. And what did Peter preach immediately after that in Acts 2? His crucifixion. The signs ultimately led to the cross. I don't want you, if you're familiar with this account, to underestimate the temptation for Jesus in his humanity to be made king by any other way than the cross. Isn't that how Satan was tempting Jesus? Jesus knew his kingdom comes by the cross, not by the popularity of crowds, not by the power of miracle, but by providing for his people salvation who cannot provide it for ourselves by way of the cross. Why wouldn't Jesus become their king? Because their deepest need wasn't bread. It wasn't political power. It was life, eternal life. And that's your deepest need. You may not realize it, but you have sinned against the God who's made you, And the sin you've committed against this God is not just a a small mistake to be swept under the rug. Your sin has placed you at enmity with God. It's made you spiritually dead such that you need God to provide life for you that you cannot possibly provide for yourself. And that is why salvation is a miracle. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to earth, to veil his glory, and he lived a life of perfect obedience. He died the death that we deserve to die on a cross, and yet by his dying, he gives life. Jesus is the crucified king whom God raised from the dead and who ascended into heaven. He would not accept that crowd's kingship, but he is crowned now with the crown above every crown, and it came to the cross. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he calls you and everyone to repent and to believe in his name. Do you know that you need life, reconciliation with God that you cannot provide for yourself? Jesus can. Come to him in faith. He's the greater Moses who provides miraculously for his people as only God can. He feeds when there's little food. Marvel at Jesus. But don't stop there. Believe in his name. Bow your knee in worship to Jesus. He feeds when there's little food. Secondly, Jesus walks 
where there's nowhere to walk. Jesus walks where there's nowhere to walk. Verses 16 through 21. Look back down at the scriptures. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, about five or six kilometers, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now when I read this, I thought, what a day. I mean, the the first story is this miraculous feeding. We have this crowd. Here is a lot more focus on the disciples. Evening has come. John says his disciples went down into the sea. Uh, Mark 6, the complement of this account, tells us immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So in John's account, we know they wanted to make him king. And I have to believe that all of this would have totally worked in the disciples. They saw the feeding, it's Passover, they see Jesus do this, and they probably wanted him to be the king as well. Disciples didn't just go down to the sea, Jesus made them go. He dismissed the crowd. We know from Mark's account why Jesus withdrew. He withdrew to pray. That's why he didn't go with them. That's why when it was dark, he had not yet come to them. He withdrew to pray. That's how he fought temptation. Private prayer. It's how Jesus responded to what was an overwhelming day. Response to this clamor for him to be king and lie this miracle. He prayed. He didn't just make time for a quick prayer. He clearly lives his life as if his life depends on it. Prayer is to the Christian what breathing is to the human. If Jesus withdrew to pray, how much more should we withdraw to pray? I do not, I do not want to guilt you about your prayer life. I want you to enjoy your prayer life. If you're in Christ Jesus, I want you to see the privilege of communing with the Father by the Spirit through the Son. Do you see that for Jesus, that the cheap thrill of popularity with a crowd where nothing compared to communion with the Father? What is it honestly that keeps you from praying? Is it Instagram or Twitter or busyness or maybe you love sleep too much? Consider how much more a privilege, how much more is accomplished in prayer. In ordinary moments, extraordinary moments, Jesus prayed. You're at the start of a new year. Make real effort to pray. If it's hard for you, start small. Form habits that are doable. Take a walk to pray. Turn your phone off. But pray. Pray beyond just your immediate needs. 
Pray for this church. Pray for this nation. Pray for the world. Come tonight to our prayer gathering. We meet once a month to pray. And don't just come for your sake. Think about coming for others' sake. To pray for them. And to know how you can pray for them. No matter what you say, your prayer life demonstrates how much you really think you're dependent upon God. You know, we, we pray and we work hard to pray publicly here because we know and we don't want anyone to doubt how much we know we're dependent on God. We deliberately work at praying in public worship because we understand our prayers together aren't just commanded, they matter. Jesus prayed. That's why he had not yet come to them. Other people can wait. Other situations can wait. This week, this year, invest in prayer. While he was away praying, the storm was becoming strong. A strong wind was blowing. There suddenly is Jesus walking on the water. Hear that again. He walked where you aren't supposed to walk, on water, and they're frightened. Now, there's people, as you can imagine, who are skeptical of miracles, and they say he was walking beside the water. John means to communicate he was walking on the water. Why else would these disciples, who had seen a lot of things on the sea, they're fishermen, why else would they be afraid? It's in their fear that Jesus identified himself. It is I. Ego, me. The phrase could be read just as it's read here. It is I. It's, it's actually how someone in that day would have identified themselves. It's I. It's me. But it also can be translated, I am. I am who I am. It's how Yahweh identified himself to Moses in Exodus 3 when Moses asked God, what's your name? When those you've sent me to ask who it is, who has sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And in saying that, God is revealing to Moses, I am the self-existent God. I have life within myself. I give life. I am not dependent on anyone or anything for life. I am immutable. It means he's unchangeable. He's never in process of becoming something different than he already is. He cannot become better. He will not become worse. So from God's self-revelation of his character in the past, his people can trust him wholly for everything in the future. When Moses went to his people to deliver them, he was to tell them, I am sent me. This gospel is very well known for seven I am sayings. Jesus will declare, I am this, I am that. He will use physical reality to clarify spiritual reality about himself. I think here in one sense, Jesus is just calming the fears of the disciples. It's I, it's me. But in a wholly other sense, he is walking on water. These disciples knew who alone had authority 
over the chaotic waters, over the sea. They would have known a psalm like Psalm 107, where we read in verse 29, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Jesus is doing what only God can do. I am. He is disclosing himself, who he really is, to these disciples. They saw him do what God alone does with bread and with loaves, but he withdrew from the crowd. And now away from the crowd, only with his disciples, he is revealing himself. Notice, not on the crowd's terms, but on his own. Who is he? Who is the Christ, the Son of God? It's Jesus, the man who provides bread in abundance when resources are lacking, a man who walks on water. Yes, he is the long-awaited prophet, but he is much more. He is God in the flesh because he does what God alone can do. And he doesn't mean for you to take him as anything less than that. So one of the claims about Jesus is that Jesus never claimed he was God. Now I wonder about you, if you've ever been frustrated with someone because they assumed things about you that simply aren't true. They never took the time to know you. You know, the only way you can know me, no matter what you assume about me, is if I reveal myself to you. If I or anyone lets you in so that you can know them. One of the reasons I am actually thankful that Christmas season is over is I honestly cannot watch one more Christmas movie. And Jenny and I were talking over Christmas. They just don't make them as good as they used to. I think one of the best Christmas movies ever is a movie called Home Alone. Are you familiar with this movie? In Home Alone, young Kevin, he's in a very rich family, spoiled family, they leave for Paris uh, for their, their Christmas vacation, but on the morning they're to leave, they oversleep. And so in their hurry uh, to get to the airport, they leave Kevin home alone. And he's now subject to, you know, two of the most idiotic thieves that have ever walked the face of the earth. Part of this story is, is the story of this old man. Strangely, he too lives home alone next door to Kevin. Kevin thinks he's a killer. That's what he's been led to believe. He's afraid of him throughout the whole movie until the older man surprises Kevin, comes and sits beside him the night before Christmas, of all places, at church. And the old man tells Kevin his life story. Far from being a killer, he's a lonely man. He longs to see his family from whom he's been estranged. And what Kevin had assumed about his neighbor was wrong. And the only way he was going to know better is if his neighbor revealed himself, told Kevin about himself. How much more with Jesus? I wonder if you've assumed things about Jesus without actually letting him tell you who he is. That's what he's doing here. Don't you expect others to not just assume things about you? Shouldn't you give Jesus this benefit? If you're here and you're not a Christian, 
I want you to know two things. One, you are so welcome, and I'm glad that you're here. I want you to keep coming. I want you to listen. I want you to ask any question you want to ask. Two, I want you to investigate Jesus, to consider who he is. Read about him in these accounts. He's either what he claims to be or he's not. He doesn't offer up a middle way. So merely respecting him is not enough. Jesus says he's owed more. He was careful in how he revealed himself. Why did he not tell the crowd who he was? Because they wanted a Messiah for a political revolution. But what he came for was to bring life, to provide for humanity in ways we cannot provide for ourselves. Jesus of Nazareth did what God alone can do. Notice he ties the revelation of himself, I am, with the reality that disciples do not need to be afraid. Same is true for us. This storm wasn't out of control. This world is not out of control. Your life is not out of control. In this new year, as you have fear and worry, are you looking at them? Are you only looking at them in very little? Looking at Jesus? You're not going to drift into trusting Jesus. You must behold Him. You must meet Him in His Word. Have fellowship with those here who will help you in following Jesus. If anything is obvious from the days of Jesus' ministry, it's this. He is more willing to meet you in your need than you are to ask. Neither the disciples nor the crowds Ask Jesus in these accounts. But Jesus met their need in abundance. So if you're in Christ, do you see how your hesitancy to go to Jesus who meets his people's needs in abundance simply does not make sense? How can you believe that he would have left the glories of heaven for this fallen world and somehow he will not do good to you now? He's bound himself to you. He's yours forevermore. He's not going back. Now, if you're not trusting Jesus, don't you at least wish he is who he says he is? Don't you at least wish that he's done what he says he's done? Notice verse 21. Once the disciples recognized him, they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going, safely brought to the shore. It's likely he performed another miracle. The storm is calmed. Immediately the boat was at the land. Jesus did for the disciples what they could not have done for themselves. I think for sure as they reflected on that night together, they would have read all of Psalm 107 about Yahweh's authority over the sea. And they would have come to verse 30, and they would have seen in their own lives what the psalm says. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. By the power of Jesus, the disciples are on the other side, only because Jesus does what God alone can do. Often it's not the right answer that matters. It's asking the right question. 
John and his gospel ask you to consider who is the Christ, the Son of God. And he's showing you it's Jesus who didn't just claim this for himself, but he proved it by doing what God alone can do. And more than that, he calls you to joy, to life, by believing in his name.